Father, we thank you (laughs) that you, Lord, take us back no matter where we've wandered. And Lord, our nation has wandered. Maybe many of us have wandered tonight, Lord. So we come to you just on bended knee, Lord, this night that we call the National Day of Prayer. Every day ought to be a National Day of Prayer. And so, Lord, we come tonight and ask that you would move in this place by your Spirit. Lord, that your Spirit would do exactly that which you will, that which you wish. Lord, convict. Lord, convince. Move in this place. Father, we thank you for the gifts that you've given to us as your people. And we pray tonight, as we open our hearts and our minds in your word, that you, God, from heaven, would speak life into us as your people. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for the gifts that have been given. And we pray that you'd use them for your glory. Bless us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you, if you want to turn there, a familiar passage to you. When we gather together on these evenings that we call the National Day of Prayer, perhaps you showed up today at one of the other times, 6, 9, 12. But tonight is a night where we as a country set aside a day out of the entire year to seek an audience with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As I was reading through the book of Joel this week, I couldn't help but come to the conclusion that Second Chronicles chapter 7, a very familiar passage to us, we read it virtually every year at this time. We, we very often at great times of need look at this passage, but there's an entire book that really elaborates on what is being said. And when I shut up the heaven and there is no rain, our governor announced on the first of this month that we're going to be under mandatory drought restrictions and we're cutting back our water usage by 25%. Could it be that the God of heaven is trying to speak to us? Could it be the one who sends the rain is not sending the rain because we're not listening? Because we have poked our finger in his eye? Because we have turned from those principles upon which this nation was founded? Or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people? How many do you know that have suffered through the pestilence of the loss of a job or perhaps a subprime mortgage? Perhaps you've been through a terrible time of pestilence. We no longer live in an agrarian society, but I guarantee you when the water dries up, we will feel the pinch as we head to the grocery store. And notice that he says, I send pestilence. I shut up the heaven. I command the locust. The Lord, I believe, is doing these things. Because we're to have no other God before him. 
that there is one king. There's one final authority, and his name is Jesus. And it goes on to say, if my people who are called by my name, that's us, church. We can't expect the world to bring forth repentance. We cannot expect the world to gather together and pray effectively to a God that they do not know. If my people, who are called by my name, will bend their knee, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and repent, turn from their wicked ways. I believe God in heaven is tired of platitudes. I believe the God of heaven is waiting for genuine repentance and genuine humility. And I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and I'll heal their land. So many parallels between this passage and the entire book of Joel. And as Joel was authored sometime in the 800s or so B.C., probably 835, a terrible time of famine had come upon the land. The Assyrian army is marching towards the children of Israel. And it was there that the prophet Joel spoke these words, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Be of ear, all you inhabitants of the land. You see the similarities? Has anything like this happened in your days, or even the days of your fathers? Family of God, can I ask you a question? Is it better today or is it worse than when you were born? Is our moral fabric stronger or is it weaker? Is the world in better shape or worse? Has there been anything like this before? I say to you, no. I've been around long enough to remember that the worst thing that most kids did when I was in school was chew gum. <laughs> now teachers are hoping they survive the day. My wife made it to be 20 years old before she even knew that there was such a thing as homosexuality. The moral fabric of our country is torn. And it's torn in about every fashion that we can imagine. It is literally ripped asunder. It goes on to say in verse 3 of Joel 1, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. That the chewing locust is left, the swarming locust will eat. And he goes on in chapter 1 to just remind us that things get worse and worse and worse until we turn around. It's how God works. He truly meant what he said. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We have many gods in our nation. 
We have the God of material wealth. We have the God of promiscuity. We have the God of abortion. We have God that now is the rampant movement towards gay marriage. Our God defined what marriage is. And he declared it was between a man and a woman. That in the beginning he created them male and he created them female. And he didn't do that because he hates people. He did that because he created us in his image. Our God is not a God of hate. He's a God of infinite love. But he's bounded that love with his law. And he has spoken truth into our existence. He is the one that's authored the laws that govern our land. So very often when we think of things such as this, we forget that Timothy, being written to by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he reminds us to fight the good fight. We have to fight the good fight. We can't fight the wrong fight. Our fight is not against people. Our fight is against the devil and his emissaries. Our fight is against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. It's where our fight is. It's not against people. Too much of the church is known simply for what it's against and not what it's for. God is for people, all people. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? And there is none righteous, not one. Amen? But when you know who God is, we as the church are supposed to be the example of righteousness. And I believe many of the social ills that we face are directly due to the church's failure to stand for Christ. It's time for the church to wake up. It's time for us to come alive. Revival begins in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. If we will not be changed, how can we expect the world around us to be even influenced, much less changed? How long will the Lord withhold his real judgments? Family, we need a battle cry. used to be that in our schools we taught children about the Revolutionary War and what it really meant. And when it comes to the first battle cry that was ever known, the battle cry of the American Revolution, most people don't even know what it is or what it was. As stated in the Declaration of Independence, those who founded the United States of America as we know it, as they wrote the Declaration, gave 27 grievances against King George of England, who was slowly taking away the rights of the colonists And it was actually pastors who began to stand up and say enough is enough. It was those men who declared with their very lives that they stood for what God stood for. That our rights have been derived from him, not from any other king. And so it was on the night of April 18th, 1775, 
John Adams, John Hancock were at the home of Reverend Clark, Jonas Clark, Presbyterian minister. And it was there that he was encountered by a British Major Pitcairn as they assembled together They were told, disperse ye villains, lay down your arms in the name of King George, the sovereign king of England. And the immediate response of Reverend Jonas Clark was, we recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. Oh, how far the mighty have fallen. How did we get here? Why is it that we find our place in this place? You see, the Lord is our judge, and we do answer to him. And tonight as we corporately spend some time in prayer, which we'll do, we're to exercise our God-given rights, and those truths that we hold to are self-evident, and very few people know exactly what that means. During the time of the colonization of this great country, a book that was in the hands of virtually every one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, was a book by Sir William Blackstone, the Commentaries on the Laws of England. And in that book it says this, this law of nature and of nature's God. The law of nature being co-equal with mankind, dictated by God himself, is the course of superior obligation to any other. It's binding all over the globe, all countries, and at all times. And no human laws have any validity if contrary to this. Oh, how far our nation has fallen. And you see, our founders knew these things. That's why they called them self-evident truths. And when you read Paul's writing to, the, to Timothy and to Titus, when you look at how he's instructing these young pastors in ministry, to Titus he would write in chapter 2 of that letter in verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Are we doing that? Is that what's coming out of the church? Can we say that about us? As we gather together tonight, those human laws that we have do, in fact, have their moorings very solidly in a biblical understanding that there is only one God. And we have no king but Jesus. And our king is coming to claim his earth one day. And we need to be busy about our father's business on this night. On every night, on every day, every morning. It's not time to be asleep. It's not time to be slumbering. It's time to be very much awake for our redeemer draws nigh. The Supreme Court has heard the arguments for gay marriage, against gay marriage. They will rule, likely in June, may enshrine 
a new definition, contrary to the definition that God has given us, that in the beginning he created them male and female. That's God's definition. We don't have the right to redefine what marriage is. It came from God. It's his institution. It's the single smallest component of human government. One man, one woman producing children. And yet we're debating this now in court. How can that be? Does that mean that we hate? No. It means that we believe God, that we trust God, and that we honor God. No matter what the price. No matter who says otherwise. His word is not ours to change. We've already seen what the Supreme Court can do in Roe versus Wade. Fifty-eight million babies have lost their lives because of that decision. You may find that hard to understand. You may that find that hard to believe. You, you may even disagree with the mere statement that I just made. But the fact of the matter is, God knits life together. And he does so from the mother's womb. He defined life and he defined marriage. We've already struck down one of the most sacred things in all of the world. Family of God, we need to pray. Because I don't know how long we can continue to thumb our nose at God. And expect that he will withhold his judgment, his justice. The preamble to our Constitution begins, We the people, in order to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity. In 1973, the Supreme Court took what was the normal rendering of the Constitution. They read into it a penumbra, a, a shadow, if you will a gray area in the Constitution. And now everything is a gray area in our Constitution. God loves all of mankind. What's next? Are we going to legalize pedophilia? We've already made divorce so common that now 50% of all people are not married. They don't even bother to do it. Are we going to change the legal age that someone can get married to that of the time of Muhammad and take a wife that's perhaps nine? It's time for us to wake up. Probably many of you have been following Aaron and Melissa Klein. They were the bakers that refused to bake a cake for a homosexual couple. And by the way, they offered to even pay for that cake to be made by somebody else. They offered to find another bake. They offered to take it at their own expense. We just have a problem because of our moral convictions and what we believe the Bible teaches. Some of you are probably familiar with the GoFundMe site. I, I actually have funded even some missions trips on that site. 
Let me share a little bit with you of how bad our country really is getting with these regards. If you go to that site today, you'll no longer find Aaron Melissa Klein, but you will find Ray Casper, a convicted pedophile. You won't find the Kleins because their crime is they stood for Christ. But you will find a convicted child molester trying to overturn his wrongful conviction for sexual assault. You also won't find the florist, Baronel Stutzman, who said she would not perform a gay wedding in her family-owned chapel that they have owned for nearly 40 years. But you will find illegal immigrants facing deportation after two felony convictions. You will find unlawful possession of firearms convicted felons. You will find prescription forgery convicted felons. You will find a jailed dog abuser. You will find a jailed shoplifter. You will find a man caught driving 92 miles an hour in a school zone. And you will find numerous other fugitives from justice. But what you won't find is Christians who have stood on their conviction that God said what he meant, meant what he said, and they intend to live it. Why am I sharing this with you? Because we need to pray. We need to ask God for forgiveness first for being off watch. So many pastors have allowed this hurt to come upon the people because they've refused to preach the truth of what God's word actually says. They're afraid they'll offend someone. I may have offended someone with what I just said. I'm willing to offend people for the sake of not offending God. not my intent to hurt. It's not my intent to shame. It is my intent to see men saved because that was the mission our Savior came for. And telling people that their sin is no longer sin is exactly what Scripture says will happen in the last days. For men will call good evil and evil good. We don't have the right to change what God has said. You cannot selectively edit your Bible For the same Bible that says, for by grace we have been saved through faith, also says that if you do such things, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. We can't be picking and choosing. We wonder why the book of Joel is so applicable to us tonight. It's the older version of the same story. The depth of the hurt was because of the rejection of God. The Hebrew people had forgotten who had brought them into the land. And I think we as the American people have forgotten who has brought us into this land. We are blessed like no other people on earth. I have traveled all over the world. I have seen 
the most destitute and poverty-stricken people with the greatest joy that you could possibly imagine because they have the one thing that matters, and that is salvation in Christ Jesus as Lord. I have given out shoes to children that have none. I have sat with people that don't know where their next meal is coming from. And we complain because our burger was two seconds late. We need to pray. The picture in this marvelous book of Joel is that the people had become intoxicated with their own uh, prosperity. I believe that America has become intoxicated with its own prosperity. And that's not saying that everyone is prosperous. prosperous. There are certainly areas of our nation that need a drastic improvement. There are areas of our inner cities that we should be ashamed of to the point that we do something about it. That we rise up with one voice as the church and we do what God's called us to do when our brother has need. That we who have the ability to do something about it, do something about it. We don't say be warm and be filled. Go your way. But then their burnt offerings continued, but their grain offerings ceased. The thing that they needed for their daily bread, they kept to themselves. They just simply sacrificed something else for it. I believe that much of the country has done that. In chapter 2 of the book of Joel, it goes on to the hopeful solution. And I want to share this with you. It says there in verse 12 of the second chapter of the book of Joel, Turn to me with all of your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And so rend your heart and not your garments. It says rend your heart. Don't tear your clothes. Don't offer me something that doesn't matter. Do what needs to be done. How are we doing what needs to be done? Rend your heart. And it says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness, and he will relent from doing harm. I believe there's time for repentance. But I believe that time is short. I don't think God's going to let us go like this too much longer. It was a call, you'll notice, for personal repentance there. It's it's a call for us for personal repentance. It's a call for a remorseful heart. And it's not that we wander around being sad every day. It's that we acknowledge that we can make a difference. The church can make a difference. The owner of your neighborhood strip club is not going to attempt to make a difference. The owner of your neighborhood bar and the people who go there that come out with their minds bent are not going to try to make a difference. Congress is not going to make a difference. It is the people of God on their knees that will make a difference. Because we are asking the one who can make a difference to make a difference. He is a difference maker. He's been making things from nothing since the beginning of time. Amen? Amen. 
He flung the stars into space. Surely he can help our country. He can help us as the church. How do we do it? Spare your people, Joel goes on to say. Oh Lord, don't give our heritage to reproach that another nation should rule over us. Why should they say amongst us, where is your God? I was watching the news this morning and they used virtually that exact wording. Where is God? If you're here tonight and you're a believer, he's in you. He's in me. He's in this place. And we need to cry out to him. Shall not the judge of the earth do right, Genesis tells us? You see, there is hope. There's great hope. There's hope of restoration. There's hope of revival. There's hope of renewal. But only if we start asking for it and then acting like it.